We continue our series entitled, Jesus Puts a Stud in Bible Study. Bo Landers, our discipleship and teaching pastor, answers numerous peculiar questions today, such as, can believers lose their salvation? These questions can be answered in Numbers 15 and Hebrews 10. However, instead of simply reading the passages, let's listen to Bo's insights on the subject to get a better understanding of God's Word. Hey, if you don't know me, my name is Bo Landers. I'm one of our teaching pastors up here. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in two central passages, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and Numbers chapter 15. All right, so uh, Frazier's going to attempt to go alongside of me. I don't know. We'll see how sporadic this gets. But uh, when I was in seminary um, yeah, years ago, I took a preaching class, and one of the preaching professors had this analogy as far as what preaching does. And uh, as I was sitting there and, and, and trying to learn, you know, how do you work through a text and how do you present a text from a homiletic perspective? How do you organize it? How do you be able to present it? One of the thing, one of the best analogies that I've heard is that preaching in many ways is like when you go to a restaurant. Now, uh, many of you, I don't know if you have preached before, maybe you've taught a life group or something like that. But what I mean by this is that when you go into a restaurant and you order your food, what do you expect to come out on the table? The food, right? The prepared food, right? You don't want to see the raw chicken, right? That's, that's weird. It's gross, right? Especially, you know, if, if it's undercooked or something like that. But you don't want to see the pots and pans. You don't want to see the seasonings, maybe, that they put on it. What you expect when you kind of walk into a restaurant, order a particular platter, you expect that to come out in sort of the finished product. Much of what preaching does is, uh, whether it's John Mark, myself, or any one of our pastors on our staff, or maybe you as a life group teacher, You work throughout the week to be able to work through the text, sort of working through the pots and pans of teaching and pots and pans of the Bible. But by the time you get to the presentation of that, you expect almost like you're delivering the finished product. You don't necessarily get to see all of the stuff, right? All of the stuff behind the kitchen. And so um, normally I would say that is how I I hope to, like when I preach on Saturdays or or as we work through Psalm 139 this Sunday, um, you know, it's one of those things that we're going to sort of present a finished, hey, here's some of the conclusions, here's how we approach the text, but this is mostly where we got. I say all of that because as we come to this study, because this is a Bible study and sort of thinking through Jesus puts the the stud in study, uh, what I want to do is something a little bit different is not create some sort of polished finished product, but sort of say, hey, what if you guys step back in the kitchen for a moment? All right. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is I want to show you just a little bit of my process in approaching Hebrews chapter 10, but also just a way that we can actually approach Bible study. And so what I hope to do is that as we look at Hebrews 10, we're going to ask some questions. We're going to say, how do we actually get to some of the conclusions? How do we get to that finished product? What are some of the the seasonings? What are some of the the pots and pans that we need in order to cook this thing to where we can actually create some of the, the, the end results, some of the application pieces? Does that make sense? And so that's what we're going to be working through um, this morning. And so Hebrews chapter 10 is probably a familiar text to many of us. And so uh, I want to begin by reading Hebrews 10. So let's just say you come to it and you get to, um, okay, perfect. Uh, And I'll be reading from the ESV translation. That's just the the one I've been working through. So uh, verse 24. It says, uh, says this, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
Now, there, normally when we approach this passage, again, it's probably, you guys have heard this passage, right? Normally, it's something like this. This is a great passage to where it's coming alongside of you saying, hey, you need to get your tail into church, right? That's normally how it's, and so what we, what we can do is we can come to that, and I think that that's a part of it. But if we step back into the kitchen, I want to say, well, how do we actually get to that conclusion, right? The word church is not used here, right? Uh, There's a sort of a collective nature to what's going on, but there's also some peculiarities. How, How do we get to that finished product? And actually, I think what we end up doing in stepping back into the kitchen on this text is we actually get a richer understanding of all that's happening here in the book of Hebrews. So I say that, you come to it, you're like, okay, these are some I'm familiar with. Have you guys read the next verse? Right? Context determines meaning. Right? So all of a sudden, you, start key, you continue reading, and that verse, the next one, may seem odd if we think, oh yeah, I need to get to church. It says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately, having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Like, this is the 26th, very next verse. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, if we're not careful, we can walk out of this going, man, if I don't go to church, I'm burning, right? Because what? If you, if you summarize 24 and 25, yeah, we need to go to church, and now all of a sudden you see in the context, well, the very next sort of encouragement is, you know, I don't need to go on sinning deliberately. So the question becomes, how do you begin to work through a text like this? How do you begin to sort of step back and go, okay, I know that, for instance, we believe in a thing uh, called the perseverance of the saints, that, that, that once you, you cannot lose your salvation. But, but here we're reading a passage that seemingly uh, seems to butt heads with that. And then broader in the context, it's like, okay, well, what about the church aspect to this? How does this fit into that? So as I was working through this, let's kind of step back into the kitchen, because here's the, the firm foundation that I sort of live my preaching and teaching on. It's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and, and I, I would encourage you to as well, right? That all Scripture has been breathed out, has, is God-breathed. All Scripture has been breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. If we truly believe that, then we come to a text like this, then we can also see not just the immediate context of what's happening in Hebrews, but we can broaden out to a whole Bible kind of perspective and say the testimony of Scripture affirms this conclusion as well. So we're going to go back into the kitchen, and one of the ways to do that, verse 26, what's the peculiar phrase? All right, maybe we can do a little participation. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What's a peculiar phrase in that, in that verse? All of it is, sure. What, what does the first part mean right here? That if we go on sinning, what is sinning deliberately? Knowing it's wrong. Doing it on purpose, knowing it's wrong. Anybody else? See, this, is a, this, this becomes a key to understanding sort of this, because sinning deliberately is deliberately there. Now, here's what's cool. All right, so turn to Numbers chapter 15. Now, the Old Testament, right, not only just lays the background information for the New Testament, Jesus fulfills every aspect of the Old Testament. Everything that has ever been written in Scripture amplifies the name of Jesus. And this is one of the ways that we can see it. Now, we come to Numbers chapter 15, and I want to begin. You can see there at the very beginning of 15, you see laws about sacrifices. I'll bring that in here in just a moment. But uh, begin in verse 22, 
okay? Because once we start reading, we're going to start figuring out, okay, this idea of sin deliberately. Well, what's the opposite of sinning deliberately? Like sinning accidentally, <laughs> right? You sin, ever, anybody ever sinned accidentally? Yeah, that's what you tell your wife, right? You're like, no, 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 it was an accident, right? But, but you see the contrast. And Numbers 15 brings out this dynamic. And that's why we're jumping here. And this is going to make sense as we work through this. Okay, so Numbers 15, I want to begin in, let's begin in verse 22. And start understanding, okay, if we sin deliberately, the opposite of that, what, how does this all play out? It says this in verse 22. But if you sin, and the word here that the ESV says is unintentionally. Okay, so we're going to get to that. This is, you may think, okay, unintentionally, like accidentally, I didn't, officer, I didn't mean to speed, right? Is that what we're talking about? We'll get to that in a second, okay? But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all of these commandments. Now, remember, we are in, important thing to remember, we're in an Old Testament context. So when we're talking about the commandments, we're in the book of Numbers, and so naturally, this is associated with the Old Testament law. Oh, did we lose them? Yeah, we did. Oh, man. I'm going to keep going, though. All right. Uh, so, but if we sit unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, then verse 23, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses. So naturally, the commandments are now associated with Moses from the day that the Lord gave the commandment and onward throughout generations. Then if it was done, so this action was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the, now here's a word, congregation. The people of God. So if you all of a sudden are sinning unintentionally against the commandments and the law of Moses, and this is done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation. So now this unintentional sin, who is culpable? Who's responsible first? The congregation. All right? Because now all of a sudden you keep reading it. It says, then if it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering. Right? Part of the sacrificial system. This is sort of a way to mitigate that sin that's happening there. A burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule and one male goat for a sin offering. Verse 25. And the priest, because of this sacrifice, shall make atonement. Right? This idea of forgiveness of sins is being given, right? This covering of sin, this atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel. And they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. And they have brought their offering, a food offering, to the Lord and the sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. Mistake and unintentional sin are, are, are directly correlated. Keep reading. 26. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven. And the stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake. Now, the first aspect I want to see here, okay, when we talk about sinning deliberately in Hebrews chapter 10, it, it's, it's got to be up against something else. And we're starting to get a clue to, as to what that is. Sinning deliberately on one hand, but now we have this idea of an unintentional sin. Okay, keep reading. And this unintentional sin has corporate or congregational uh, sort of uh, 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 conclusions, right? It, it naturally affects the entire community of the people of God. But also, verse 27, if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer, now it's the individual. Not only is it a corporate understanding, but now it's the individual. It says this, if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, there's our word again, 
for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. I say all this because sinning deliberately all of a sudden gives us a clue in the text. Again, we're stepping back into the kitchen for this. We're like, what does that exactly mean? Well, it's juxtaposed or it's up against this whole idea of what? Sinning unintentionally. Unintentionally throughout the Old Testament is not that it was like, oops, like, or an accident. Sinning by mistake is also how it's translated. Best understanding of that is because of the sacrifice that comes for the people, because of the sacrifice that comes for the individual, here's what an unintentional sin is. It's not so much that they did it, oops, like an oopsie, so much as when they sinned, they were repentant. When they sinned, now all of a sudden they believed that, there, that atonement needed to be made. And for the whole people of God and for that individual, this idea of an unintentional sin was saying, I have messed up, therefore I will go back before the Lord. So, sinning deliberately in Hebrews 10, we're going to get to that here in just a moment, but the opposite of this is not sinning accidentally, so much as it is sinning and then repenting. Now, we keep building this, and you're saying, okay, how are you getting all that? Look at the very next verse in Numbers 15, because now the idea of sinning deliberately comes in, because it is straight up against this idea of unintentional sin. Verse 29, I'm sorry, verse 30. It says, but the person who does anything, and now here's the word in the ESV, anything with a high hand. What does that mean? The upper hand, right? What? An oath. An, an oath. Uh, but even more so, it's almost a sense of, think of like having the upper hand is like having a, a sense of pride or self-righteousness about you. Or you, all of a sudden you, you sin with the upper hand or the high hand. Whether he is a native or a sojourner, so the people of God or those who have joined it, reviles the Lord. There's no atonement process for the people or for the individual. But he reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among the people. Because he has despised or blasphemed the word of the Lord. And has broken his commandments that that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity or sin shall be on him. Now, all of a sudden, when we go to Hebrews 10, 26, we're going to build this full context here. Sinning deliberately is straight up against sinning unintentionally in Numbers 15. Sinning deliberately is now associated with this sinning with a high hand. Now, when you think of sinning with a high hand, again, this is sin deliberately, blatantly, proudly. No atonement is made. The context is that this reviles the Lord. This blasphemes the Lord. So now all of a sudden we're clued into what's happening in Hebrews 10. And one more passage is going to help us with this in Numbers 15. But this idea of sinning with a high hand now all of a sudden is getting to this idea of sinning deliberately. There's no repentance involved. There's no belief involved. There's no uh, building back to the sacrificial system and, and working through the atonement in the Old Testament. That sinning deliberately has something to do with you have done something to where you are unrepentant. You have done something to where you remain proud. You remain deliberately against the Lord and what He has done. How do you know that? Keep reading in Numbers 15. Because now all of a sudden, verse 32 gives us an example of this high-handed sin. Maybe you've heard this passage before, but it's all going to paint the context. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man doing what? Gathering sticks. Seems harmless, right? He's going to go build a fire or something like that on the Sabbath day. Now there's your clue. The Sabbath, as part of the Old Testament covenant, was a sign there in the Ten Commandments of all the Ten Commandments. It was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. 
So what this means is that as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, that the people's fidelity to the Lord, the people's faithfulness to the Lord, the people's uh, sort of love to the Lord was encapsulated by this idea of obeying the Sabbath. Again, this is Old Testament context. Now all of a sudden, what are they supposed to do on the Sabbath? They're supposed to rest. What is this man doing? He's gathering sticks. He's going to build a fire, maybe perhaps for cooking, maybe perhaps for staying warm. But notice, they found a man. Now, what's interesting about that word found, anytime this Hebrew word is used throughout the Old Testament, it's in an incriminating way, right? You ever found out somebody's been, you know, doing something like maybe at your work and you're like, they've been cooking the books this whole time. I found out that happened, right? They were intentionally deceitful and then you found that out. This is the same idea here. So all of a sudden they found it. So he was hiding this idea. Everyone else in the, the camp, everyone else in the people of God, they were resting like they were supposed to, honoring the Lord. But now they found him. Keep reading verse 33. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron to all the congregation. Now they put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done. Now, when you think of this idea, right, this private sin that he was doing now is put before what? All the people of God. Why? Because there is a corporate component to the Old Testament and how this understood that when this one individual sins, it affects the entire community. Why is that? What's interesting is is that truly uh, sin throughout the people of God ends up being like a cancer cell. And this is sort of the best analogy that I can see. If you've ever had cancer or know somebody who has cancer, the doctor comes in and he's like, hey, listen, uh, here we have two options for you. We can either eradicate every cancer cell or we can leave one. What do you say to that? Well, of course, eradicate everything. Why? Because what do cancer cells do? No matter if you have one or you have a bunch, they continue to spread. That's the whole problem with cancer. That once it gets somewhere, then the danger is that it's going to spread somewhere else. Sin throughout the Old Testament context is the same way within the people. All of a sudden, now they're figuring out, okay, this one person's sin is now affecting the entire community of the people. So what happens? So they go before Moses, verse 35. And the Lord said to Moses, this man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with the stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp, stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Now you may be thinking, all right, I was cool up until this point. Like, what just happened? They went on a, a, like a pitchfork thing. They were like, this man, he gathered some sticks, so naturally I'm going to impale him with one, right? Like, I, I don't quite understand, like, what exactly is happening? Now remember... As we're sort of showing the, the kitchen and showing the pots and pans of all that's happening, the sin of the, of the individual affects the entire people. Like a cancer cell, they're supposed to eradicate that sin. Now, the consequence for breaking the Sabbath in the Old Covenant was death. The people bring this man before. They're like, what should we do? Naturally, they need to eradicate the sin. Now, why? Well, because there's a difference between what the, what the scripture just said is an unintentional sin or a sin by mistake that is someone is seeking repentance and somebody is seeking the Lord and seeking atonement and seeking sacrifice versus a high-handed sin where they're saying, no, nah, I'm good. Or it's individualistic. He breaks away from the camp. And so the context of Numbers 15, all of this said, paints us a picture of what this word in Hebrews 10 means. To sin deliberately isn't simply just to sin and go, man, I meant to do that, but I'm really sorry that I did that. No, no, no. That technically would fit into what? An unintentional sin. Because that's what sacrifice covers. 
But now all of a sudden, we're seeing that sinning deliberately means something a little bit different. So, as we sort of continue to work through, let's go to Numbers chapter 10, or I mean uh, Hebrews chapter 10. And now let's unpack this a little bit further. Because now as we have this sort of Numbers 15 background in our head, now all of a sudden we can get to, okay, what, how does this fit within the context of Hebrews 10? Now, what comes before uh, sort of Hebrews 10, 24? Well, again, context determines meaning. If you look at the, just the overarching headings, and you're, you're going to see at least one of them uh, up there at verse 1, you see Christ sacrifice once and for all. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 is about the same thing. Now, why are we talking about sacrifice? If you go read in Numbers chapter 15, right before 22, when it talks about the unintentional sins, you know what it talks about? The laws of sacrifice. Now, why is that parallel happening? Because all of a sudden, in the Old Testament context, they needed to mitigate their sin through a sacrificial system. Now, in the New Covenant context, with Jesus on the scene, who is that sacrificial, who's the the fulfillment of that sacrificial system? Jesus. Look at verse 11 through 14. Let me just show you this example, right? And every priest stands daily at this, at his service. Now, remember, Jesus in Hebrews 4, for instance, has already been called the great high priest, the one who's better, the one who goes before the people, the one who offers this once and for all sacrifice. This is what it said. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, now all of a sudden we're seeing the sacrifice of Jesus is different than the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Jesus is coming along and he's saying, look, your priests keep going before, your priests keep going before offering these sacrifices for the individual and for the whole community. And Jesus has come in as the great high priest, offered the once and for all sacrifice for all people so that no priest has to keep going before the temple offering more sacrifices. But instead, what takes place? Jesus has done it all. Not only is he the great high priest, he's also the great sacrifice. And he becomes the the, the ultimate sacrifice for us that he would then, that we would find our salvation in him. Keep reading, because then it says, um, and and, uh, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us saying this, this is the covenant. Keep saying covenant language. Old covenant, Old Testament, that whole understanding. Well, now we have a new covenant under this banner of Jesus, not Moses, but Jesus. This is the covenant that I will make them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put their laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Not going to be written on stone tablets any longer. Now they're going to be put and dwell inside the individual. Then he adds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The sacrifices are numbers, uh, from Numbers 15 just before what we read are done away with. And now in 15 through 18, those who receive the Holy Spirit by doing what? Well, Numbers 15 helps us. The unintentional sin. What are they doing? How do they offer the sacrifice? They're repentant. They believe in the sacrificial system so much as that it would mitigate their relationship with God, that they would repent from their sin and find life in God. That's Numbers 15 context. Now, we see right here in this, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, 
When we believe on his sacrifice, when we repent from his sins, what do we get? That verse 18 is glorious. Where there is the forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Why? Because the one who died has fulfilled that final ultimate sacrifice for us. So I say all of that because as we get into Hebrews 10, 26, a a hard passage, we see it in the, the broader context, all of a sudden we start to get a picture of what this begins to look like for the believer. That the believer's salvation is guaranteed on the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. But like Numbers 15, there's a difference between unintentional sins and high-handed ones. There's a difference between these mistakes that seek repentance and these blatant ones that continue to revile and blaspheme God. All right, so now we've got this. Again, we're back in the kitchen. We're starting to, everything's starting to sizzle. We're cooking bacon, guys, if that helps at all, all right? So, because once we get, and that was a Jewish joke, by the way, because now Jesus, anybody? All right, Shadow, Old Testament, great. All right, so so as we continue to cook and as we continue to sort of develop this, now all of a sudden, because we're seeing that the ones who get the sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice, that, that is the fulfillment of Numbers 15, those are the ones who repent. Now, What do they gain? Here's the thing. They gain individual benefits and they gain collective or corporate community benefits. Look at verse 19 through 23. What does the individual get? Well, no longer does he have to offer a sacrifice because he believes and he is repentant and he uh, gains the, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... Not because of the blood of sacrifices that didn't work. Go read the rest of 9 and 10. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us do what? Draw near with a true heart in full assurance in faith. Here's what I want. This is a really important phrase. If we go to Hebrews 10.26 in just a few verses and we think, oh man, I can lose my salvation. Or somehow this is, this is weird. And now if I keep on sinning, somehow I'm going to miss the assurance of faith. You're missing the full context of Hebrews 9 and 10. You're missing the full context of what Jesus' sacrifice does. The contrast is not between, uh, you know, keep on not sinning in your salvation, or if you sin, you're going to lose it. The contrast is between what we call unintentional sins, or those that seek repentance, versus those that don't. Because if you keep reading, the individual gains the benefit of the offering and sacrifice that took place. Now, that's the individual, but there's also a corporate one. Now, we're building to all this. We started with this idea, verse 24, the individual benefits, but guess what? There's still a community aspect to salvation. And let us then, because in light of the sacrifice, let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good works, not neglecting to meet Uh, together, as some in the habit are doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, all of a sudden, the community of believers benefit. This is a direct parallel to Numbers 15, where the community had to offer a sacrifice because of the one man's sin, and the one man had to offer a sacrifice because now, individual and corporately, the people of God are saved by the sacrifice of Jesus. Furthermore, this reveals to us basically the glorious nature of the new covenant, the glorious nature of all that Jesus has done. So I say all of that because in the New Testament context, rather than sin being like a cancer cell, sin has been eradicated by Jesus. It's completely done away with. He is the fix to the cancer cell problem. 
Now, when you go to verse 26, having said all of that, now we get a clue. But, or for, if we go on sinning deliberately. Now all of a sudden we kind of have an idea of what, as to what that is. Unintentional sin, sins by mistake, sins that seek repentance and belief in Jesus Christ are what? Well, according to verse 18, that we have forgiveness of sins. There's no need for more sacrifice because the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient for all. But now all of a sudden sinning deliberately is directly up against that unintentional sin. And this is the sin of the high hand. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So this idea of sinning deliberately, this high-handed kind of sin, must then mean that this is an individual who has been exposed to the truth, who has seen the community of God that, uh, that uh, being transformed, and as they witness all of that, what do they do? They don't believe and they don't repent. They don't believe and they don't repent. They step back. They remain separate from the people of God. They no longer join the congregation of the people of God. They remain in their individualistic tendencies. They keep, uh, they keep their pride. They keep their self-sufficiency. They keep all of that. Why? Because Numbers 15 has helped us play that. Because that's exactly what the Sabbath breaker did. Now we're seeing it here play out in this passage. And what's the result of their pride? That's 27. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The guy in Numbers 15, he was put to physical death. Now in 27, what happens? There's a spiritual death involved. See, what this does, as we've sort of stepped back it step back into the kitchen. We start to see how all of this plays, plays together. We start to see, man, this idea of Hebrews 24 and 25... This idea is far greater than just simply, hey, you need to get your tail into church. That's true. It starts to tell us why. Because there is both an individual aspect to our salvation, but there is also a community aspect to our salvation. You're not just saved to be on an island with your volleyball named Wilson. Right? Like that's not why you're saved. You're not saved just for the pure individualistic effort of what Jesus did for you. That is how you are saved, but you are saved so that you might be saved into the body of believers. That you might be saved into a corporate context where all of us celebrate the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Yes, we're talking about church in some ways, but what I'm trying to sort of, the heart of this message is now getting into something much deeper. What we need as believers is not to just simply sit through another church service where we come in and we feel this obligation to sit, sit back and just hear another message or sing another song or something like that. This truly is a call to join the community of faith so that we will be mutually encouraged for what purpose? To be reminded of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we no longer have to go before the temple, offer our sacrifice, but we can all together collectively be repentant. And in our collective repentance, the Lord is glorified because you weren't just saved for you, you were saved for us. It becomes a collective for us. Now, this passage in Hebrews 10 all of a sudden looks like this. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith with hope without wavering, for He promised us. And then verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Why? No, you need to get your tail into church. Yes, yeah, sort of. 
but because there is a purpose to the community of faith. There's a purpose to the Christian community. Your salvation is for the individual and your salvation is communal. So I say all of that. As we wrap up, I realize it is 7 o'clock. I want to give four quick application points, right? We were in the kitchen. We saw all of that. Let me, let's present sort of the platter as we close, right? What's the finished product? What, are we, what have we been trying to build to? Well, first, all right, I'm going to give four quick points. First is this. The beauty of Scripture always points to Jesus. Everything. We, if we believe, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture has been breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness, then we understand it is only useful and authoritative in our lives because Jesus Christ is all up in it. And so for us, as we read something like Hebrews 10, we can come to it and we can get sort of this uh, maybe meaning of, yeah, we need to go to church. But as we unpack Scripture, we can also understand the fuller testimony of God's Word to get us to Jesus and His significance. That's point number one. Second idea, what's the goal of Christian community? It's not just simply uh, to uh, just go to church. Right? It's not just simply to hear another sermon or another singing, but instead it's to encourage one another to keep on doing what? Believing and repenting. You want to talk about why it's important in your lives? The Sabbath breaker in Numbers 15, what was his problem? He went off by himself. He went off away from the community of faith. He went off and did his own thing. He went off and tried to hide his sin. And as a result, he ended up having a physical death as a result. The encouragement here is that in your unintentional sins, in your sins that you're committing, whether people know about it or not, the purpose of the Christian community is they would come alongside you, encourage you to do what? Not, oh man, that's okay, you know, you know, everybody messes up sometimes. No. Hey man, you need to repent. You need to think on the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus and let me mutually encourage you and stir you up so that you can love well and that you can pursue good works. See, now church becomes less about sitting through a service and more about mutual accountability. The goal of Christian community is to constantly be surrounded by people who love you and encourage you to love one another and stir one another up toward good works. Here's the third idea. So the beauty of Scripture, right? What's the goal of this Christian community? Uh, To constantly be surrounded by people who love you and encourage you in the faith. Then here's the third. Therefore, you need community. That's your third point. You need community. You need this Christian kind of community. Because 26 is not just losing your salvation, but never having it in the first place. And so when you hear these people who hear the gospel and they they hear the truth, but then they remain isolated, they remain self-sufficient, they remain prideful, they remain away from the community, they're never faced with that again. 26 and 27, then the purpose of Christian community, in part, is to safeguard against the high-handed self-sufficiency of an unrepentant sinner. And so really, you need Christian community, not because it saves, not because it's an obligation. You need it to be constantly reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus and to claim Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of that sacrifice, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God, for that is your spiritual act of worship. As guys, what do we want to do? Man, I'm a Christian. I can do this. And we just, we white knuckle our way through life. And we sit there and say, 
I can do this on my own. I've got this. I can read my Bible. I can pray really well. I can get all this. And we get into this self-sufficiency. We get into this cycle of pride. We get into this uh, individualism within the context of the gospel. And that's not at all what Hebrews 10 is saying. It's saying you, in fact, can't do it on your own. You need not only the Holy Spirit to come alongside of you. You need one another. You need to be encouraged. Why? Because life will spit, will, will chew you up and spit you out. But the purpose of the Christian community is not to come in here and then go back out. It is to collectively encourage one another with this kind of word. And we as guys in an individualistic where you're doing your own thing, kind of in your own world, where you can privately do a ton of things on the, the phone in your pocket, the encouragement for us is that you need this kind of Christian community. But then here's the fourth idea as we close. Not only do you need it, other believers need you. Other believers need you. If the Christian community mutually encourages, you're not only a recipient of that encouragement, but you're also a giver of that encouragement. Why? Because you're also a part of the Christian community. You may think, man, I've got it. I'm fine. I'm cool. I've got this. Yeah, but your neighbor might not. Why do you think you're there? You think you're there just to come in and come out and do your own thing? No. The goal of the Christian community is to what? Mutual, mutually encourage one another in the Lord in this way. Your role is to help people know the gospel, walk with them so that they might truly embrace the sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice, so that the, in their unintentional sins they might seek repentance. The gathering of the saints is not purely for your benefit, it is for the mutual benefit. So therefore church is not about your preferences. It's not about the songs that you like. It's not about, you know, uh, somebody sitting back and teaching the best kind of sermon. The purpose of the church, the purpose of the gathering of God's people is this mutual encouragement to remind ourselves continually of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. This is beautiful. Because this means that our church is not dependent upon lights. Our church is not dependent upon all this, uh, you know, loud music. Our church is not dependent upon all the activities that we have. Our church is dependent upon the mutual encouragement of the Lord. That we would stir one another up. Love one another well. That takes the pressure off all the gimmicks. And it puts the pressure on us actually being guys who need each other. So as we close... What is Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, where we started? And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is some in the habit are doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What does this mean? Yeah, get your tail into church, but why? Because it's not just about church. It's not just about Sunday. It's not just about Saturday. It's not just about one-time gathering. This is now, all of a sudden, a continual aspect to the life of the believer. If Jesus gives us a new heart, if I use this analogy, Jesus gives us a new heart. This is all over like Ezekiel and different paths. Jesus gives us a new heart through the new covenant. Then the Christian community is its rhythm. If Jesus gives us this new heart, then the Christian community becomes its, its rhythm. It helps it continue to beat. And sometimes when it gets out of whack, what does the Christian community do? It's like a defibrillator. It shocks us back into place. It's like a little pacemaker in us. Shocks us back into place. That's the purpose of the Christian community. And when your heart is beating well, go help somebody else who isn't. Now all of a sudden we see this, yeah, get your tail into church, but why? Because this is the kind of encouragement that we have called to. For fear, there is a warning here. 
There are some among us that are going to keep being self-sufficient and prideful, and they will fall away. But true believers will embrace the sacrifice of Jesus and be mutually encouraged together. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time. Lord, as we have uh, just gone back into the kitchen and sort of unpacked this passage of, 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 of Numbers 15 and Hebrews 10, there's so much more we could say. But God, I pray that this one simple thought is reminded to us this morning. That the purpose of the church is not for some sort of personal benefit or personal preference. The purpose of the church is that we would mutually encourage one another. That even in our unintentional sins, we would believe and repent together, pursuing you. That we would run, as Hebrews 12 say, we we would run in such a way to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You are good, you are gracious, you are kind. I thank you for each of these men here. May we be encouraged to encourage one another in that word. To your son Jesus' name we do pray. Amen and amen. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. For more information about Cottonwood Creek Church, visit cottonwoodcreek.org. And we hope you come back to listen to future episodes of Men's Bible Study. 